Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sample Size. The only news podcast that cares about science. I'm your host, Samantha Spears. And I'm your other host, Wildcard Cameron. Ooh, okay. Yeah, we're sticking to that. I said I stuck, uh, yeah, I'm going to stick to this. I guess, all, right, all right. I'm committing. Okay, I, I, didn't, I didn't know if you would go, go back on that. <laughs> it's been a week. <laughs> it's been a week. Actually, that's that, that phrase has so many meanings right now. It's been a week. <laughs> and unfortunately, in this week, we have lost a very, very awesome person that makes me very sad. I think we're going to be talking a lot about her on top of other stuff. So, uh, Sam, I think I gave away the goose. <laughs> a little. And technically, that was last week. But yes, the sentiment is still there. This episode is a little different from normal because it's not really related to a specific news story. But I'm doing a general Supreme Court roundup of court cases because the Supreme Court is starting their 2020 session next Monday. So I thought it'd be a good idea to like review some previous cases and then go over some cases to look forward to. Of course, it's all science and technology related because there's a lot of good cases, but not all of them relate to like science and health issues and tech issues. And as Cameron was mentioning, or as wildcard Cameron was mentioning, the, okay, you don't get to say that. I oh, get to I don't? Say that. Oh, that's just for you? That's just for me. <laughs> okay. Well, as Cameron was mentioning, yes, recently we've lost a Supreme Court justice. Unfortunately, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died on September 18th at the age of 87 of pancreatic cancer in her home surrounded by her family. Yeah, and I mean, she'd been fighting this for a while. Oh, and yeah. Also, the lady was like an absolute unit. Like her, there's footage of her personal trainer basically going to her casket uh, yeah was in repose mm -hmm. and just doing push-ups in front of it out of respect i was like this is the wildest thing i'm so happy to see this is a weird year where that's like i'm happy because i saw a man go do push-ups in front of a grave <laughs> right yeah no she was a very fit lady and very much active trying to be healthy like trying to keep active and also just a general champion and awesome person yes that, that's just the theme of her life and i think you wanted to do a little bit of conversation about her out of respect and just like the legacy she left. Oh, yes, of course. And just a bit of an overview for those of you who do not know. She was a champion of gender equality and women's rights, and she was the second woman to be appointed to the Supreme Court. And when she acted as a lawyer and professor, she argued on behalf of several cases involving gender equality. And she really pushed for the idea that the 14th Amendment afforded equal protections, not just to racial and ethnic minorities, but also to women. And she, like, continued that fight when she got to the Supreme Court, like, dissenting on decisions that, you know, limited back pay to those who faced employment discrimination and allowed companies to refuse to cover birth control for religious reasons. So she was an incredible woman. She did a lot of things. I do not have time in this episode to mention all of them. But I do have links to articles that go over her life, particularly an NPR article that really covers it. Going back to what you said about how she was always an advocate for equality, regardless of who was representing, it was like, I feel like every Supreme Court justice is kind of like defined by a specific way they interpret the law and how that goes to shine on how they interpret cases and what kind of cases 
they have the most impact on. And mm-hmm. she was like the one that stood out as equality in every possible respect of the word. And so I think that's a big reason why I always really liked how she interpreted the law and always was fascinated with her dissents because it's focused on equality in every aspect. It doesn't matter who you are, what you're doing. If you are a human being on the planet Earth, you should all be treated equally under the guise of the law. Yes, I completely agree with all that. And I'm going to bring up the newest pick because President Trump just announced it this Saturday. But first, let me give a little bit of background. So first, RBG, she like knew this fight was going to happen. Apparently, she told one of her granddaughters like days before she died that, quote, my most fervent wish is that I will not be replaced until a new president is installed. Of course, that's not going to happen. And Mitch McConnell then released a statement on, Friday Mitch. morning. Come on, you crazy <laughs> turtle man. Let me. OK, let me read you a portion of his statement he released very soon after the announcement of her death. And his statement first, like it highlighted some of her accomplishments and kind of gave her a little bit of a memorial. But then let me read you this quote. In the last midterm election before Justice Scalia's death in 2016, Americans elected a Republican Senate majority because we pledged to check and balance the last days of a lame duck president's second term. We kept our promise. Since the 1880s, no Senate has confirmed an opposite party president's Supreme Court nominee in a presidential election year. By contrast, Americans reelected our majority in 2016 and expanded it in 2018 because we pledged to work with President Trump and support his agenda. Hold on. Are those factually false? Those are factually <laughs> false claims. Like they didn't expand anything in 2018. I'd, hold on, hold on. Because we pledged to work with President Trump and support his agenda, particularly his outstanding appointments to the federal judiciary. Once again, we will keep our promise. President Trump's nominee will receive a vote on the floor of the United States Senate. Actually, okay, so this is wacky because when Scalia died, they replaced him with Gorsuch, if I recall. And wasn't Gorsuch like the key vote? I think it was a key vote as a constitutional literalist in terms of saying – like the gender equality episode we did a few weeks back, literally the Supreme Court ruled in favor of transgender gender equality as part of being gender discrimination because of a literalist reading of the law, because of Gorsuch, the dude he put on the freaking Supreme Court. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's Gors- Gorsuch. He's been like the wild card of the Supreme Court. Ah, uh, yes. The Cameron is. <laughs> no, I don't want to be associated with that man. No, no, I take that back. He's a conservative justice who's has sided with liberal justices in the past. Like, yeah, it's like, just, it's like his siding doesn't automatically go with his other conservative justices. Yeah, that was the exact same thing about Scalia. Was Everything Scalia did was seen as conservative, but he himself always was considered a constitutional literalist. He mm-hmm. read it. As it was intended in the original drafting, not as it might be interpreted in a modern reimagining. So let's transition to Trump's newest pick, who he's put up for Supreme Court. And as you mentioned, she is a woman, Amy Coney Barrett, a 48-year-old devout Catholic. She taught in Notre Dame Law School for 15 years, and she currently sits on the appeals court in Chicago. She actually used to be a clerk under Antonin Scalia which is kind of wild. Okay. And so she has kind of similarities with his thinking and some of those things. More importantly, the reason why she has been picked is because she is anti-abortion and anti-ACA, which the ACA is the Affordable Care Act. Or Obamacare. People, for some reason, do not think they're the same thing, but they are. Like every time you see <laughs> something that says Obamacare bad, 
and you're under the Affordable Care Act, that is Obamacare. And a little sneak peek into what we're going to talk about near the end of this episode, the ACA, a legal battle over that, is coming up to the Supreme Court this session. So this is a very important pick, and that's kind of the reason for all the rush in trying to get her appointed and get on the Supreme Court as quickly as possible. Also, you can maybe think of maybe it'll surge Republican voters, like when election season comes out. I don't really know that. That's just kind of what I was reading. I have an article linked. I was just reading some stuff about it. But that's the main reason for the huge push for wanting to have someone on the Supreme Court as quickly as possible. Plus, if she gets appointed, then the Supreme Court would be a 6-3, like six of them conservative leaning and three liberal leaning. So it'll be a very conservative Supreme Court. Yeah. So going back to the thing I said about Gorsuch, that's kind of a big thing because if you have four liberals and five conservatives, you just need to get one of those conservatives to switch in order for a ruling to go in a completely different direction. So there's before there was that kind of uncertainty on like certain top issues, especially if you have people who are trying to read the law as legal scholars and not as partisan members of a political party, then the law is more subject to change. There's more opportunities for new laws presented from the Supreme Court to actually impact the country. If you have mostly conservative justices, if they are thinking – and that's the weird thing about the Supreme Court is that it's supposed to be this place where they're supposed to be acting as the scholars who are interpreting laws either past or current to figure out what should be done about the cases before them. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's why it's weird to think that even a partisan judge, technically you don't know how they might vote in certain cases. Yes, that's very true. Like it isn't an automatic like party alignment. It's more just a thinking process. But this, of course, having this 6-3 stack would, of course, favor the Republican Party because tends to have a conservative viewpoint is from that particular party. But yeah, it would just it would just be a stacked Supreme Court. So that means most of the decisions would most likely align in a certain way of thinking. And so with all that said, are you ready for a Supreme Court roundup? Yes, because I have opinions. (laughs) You have opinions? I have dissenting opinions. You don't even know what these cases are. Oh, don't worry. (laughs) All right. So we're first going to go in the past. I'm going to talk about some key decisions that were from the last session, the 2019 one. So long ago. Oh, yeah. Forever ago. (laughs) Back when you could be outside without fear. And funny enough, how these sessions work, the 2019 session was actually just earlier in 2020 (laughs) when these cases were done Mm -hmm. because things got delayed due to the pandemic. All right. So let's start with the first case, June Medical Services versus Russo. In this case, the Supreme Court struck down a Louisiana anti-abortion law that would have required abortion providers to have admitting privileges at a hospital near their clinic. And this requirement is very difficult for providers to get, and it does little to improve the health outcomes of the patients when it comes to abortion cases. This is a great one to start on because we want to be a place of science. We are a podcast where you come to learn the science behind the things you hear on the news and the laws you're hearing about. And this is one of those examples where they're using the law to define science. It makes no sense. Like nothing about this law has to do with actual like like they said, they struck it down because it doesn't actually have to do with improving the health outcomes of the patients that are represented under the law. Yeah, it's it's one of those laws that everyone looking at it could see, OK, this is just a way 
to get abortions practically illegal in Louisiana. Like that was the whole reason the law was constructed. And because of Roe v. Wade, abortions are not illegal. So some states have taken to passing these certain laws to put just a bunch of restrictions on getting abortions so that they are pretty much illegal. Like they're just very difficult to get. So the court voted 4-1-4, and actually Chief Justice John Roberts casted the designing vote. So I think it was, I think Roberts is actually the wild card. I'm trying, I may have got it wrong. Well, if it turns out they're all wild cards, except they're all for wild Kavanaugh, cards. not Kavanaugh. <laughs> all right, but so Justice Roberts, so he is one of the conservative justices. He personally is very against abortions, but he struck down this Louisiana law because it was practically identical to a 2016 Texas law that was already struck down by the Supreme Court. So uh, Roberts, he actually wrote in his opinion that the principle of, I may mispronounce this, a stare decreases, decreases, Let me see. Okay. It's basically that courts should upheld their prior decisions and not like flip-flop. Let me just read some quotes from Justice Roberts. I joined the dissent in Whole Women's Health and continue to believe that the case was wrongly decided. Whole Women's Health, by the way, was that 2016 case about the Texas law. The question today, however, is not whether whole woman's health was right or wrong, but whether to adhere to it in deciding the present case. The result in this case is controlled by our decision four years ago in validating a nearly identical Texas law. So, yeah, I just... Big flex. Big flex indeed. I just, I find that so fascinating to be like this person goes, okay, I'm against this. I was against this previous decision. I think this was an incorrect decision. However, it was decided beforehand. So, you know, Louisiana, you obviously can't do this. We've already done all this before. The Supreme Court has spoken. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Any last thoughts before we move on to the next case? No, I just, well, okay. One is, yeah, look, again, just like Gorsuch. Isn't it wild how you can have a very conservative person on the Supreme Court and still decide to be a legal scholar who interprets the law and does not vote along party lines? Yeah. And also speaking to someone could have personal views on something but still adhere to the law mm -hmm. and what it is. Like you can have an actual split and, you know, what you would personally think and do based on, you know, what law dictates and what your understanding of the law and how this country is run dictates. So the next case is Little Sisters of the Poor Saints Peter and Paul Home versus Pennsylvania et al. Basically, et cetera, or the other people. I don't actually know what at all means. At all means all the other people who are on the other side. No, I mean like what that was abbreviated for. I like, don't speak Latin. Okay. <laughs> this is just going to be us being like, well, I don't know Latin at Maybe all. Maybe it's like featuring, like it's the album <laughs> title. It's Pennsylvania featuring. All right. All right. Al. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, everyone. Okay. This is Little Sisters of the Poor Saints Peter and Paul Home versus Pennsylvania. Okay. In this case, the court upheld two interim final rules issued by the Departments of Health and Human Services, Labor, and the Treasury that give broader religious exemptions to the Affordable Care Act rule that requires employees to provide group-based health insurance plans that cover contraceptive care for women. All right. That was a bit of a earful, but basically... With this ruling, it upheld a decision that Department of Health and Human Services said, which gives – wow, I'm just really saying the same stuff. It gives broader religious exemptions for the ACA. With this, now more employers can say that, oh, I do not want to provide health insurance to my employees because it violates my religious beliefs. 
this ruling makes the Department of Health and Human Services basically said it's easier to claim that. They made the restrictions and stuff you have to qualify for easier. And this ruling says it's okay. Those things are not in violation legally of the ACA. And this is, I mean, this is a bummer because on the one hand, like, it feels like one of those cherry-picked cases. Yeah. So for anyone who doesn't know, turns out you can actually cherry-pick cases that you would like to have come up in court so that you can argue them all the way up to the Supreme Court and change laws across the land. Oh, yeah. That happens, like, all the time. It was the reason we got segregation was that they actually had to wanted to end segregation in a specific state. I think it was Texas. And as a result, it went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And they were like, what if you just did it everywhere? And that was that. <laughs> that was a bad idea. That was a bad idea. No, not I'm not laughing. I'm laughing at the way you said that. I'm not laughing at that. That was a very bad idea. But, yeah. But the thing here is, like, it's another case of it sounds like, in my opinion, because it's hard to ever tell what everyone's sentiment is, them cherry picking this case as a way of saying this is another example of how the ACA cannot be fairly applied equally across the country because you're you're supposed to give these religious exemptions. And it sounds like an example of them cherry picking a case to weaken the ACA so that they can further try to get rid of it. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good assessment, honestly. That's kind of what I got from it. And then also, I just find this fascinating because there will probably be an episode at some point of how, like, universal health care would be a good idea yeah, to do. Yeah, I, I imagine you've been wanting to do the episode for a billion years yeah. because you're a public health <laughs> juggernaut. <laughs> at some point, that will come up. But this in particular is an example where if you had universal health care, this would not be a thing. Yeah. Like, there would be no reason for the employer to have any kind of burden on thinking, oh, no, my religious rights are being violated by providing my employees with a health care where they may be able to get birth control or abortions or any other things you don't believe in religiously because the employers wouldn't be providing the health care. It would be the state would be providing it. It's also weird because it's like you're saying, I don't like the idea that you could get contraception, so you don't deserve health care. Kind of, yeah. It's, it's a bad example. It's saying like, okay, well, what if I get sick with something else? And again, to be fair, did not read the entire, like these legal briefs are long and I have a very limited amount of time my day. So, Well, I was going to say like there was a case before for Hobby Lobby basically didn't want to provide health insurance because of that reason, because mm -hmm. they didn't want their health insurance be used to provide contraceptive. And it's just, I don't know, just the idea of your employer determining what kind of health care you get and what kind of like health care you're allowed to get. It's just kind of weird. Like it just all goes back to like, what if we were in a country where there was a certain baseline of health care that all citizens got? No matter what. No matter what. And then some of these issues would just go away in particular because when it comes to like religious exemptions and stuff, when you're able to place the burden not on yourself but on something else, all that stuff just kind of disappears. This also just brings up – if you look at the universal healthcare model, this brings up a weird question of how secular is government supposed to be because even though the US government is supposed to be secular and not favor any one religion over the other, it's pretty clear that Christianity has a leading emphasis in our government's own foreign policy and all sorts of other pieces of how we operate our government. Oh, yeah. Yes. Even when we try to implement universal health care, it would be a question of, well, what would we allow? But – if you look at other countries, yeah, it's pretty obvious that giving everyone universal access to healthcare is a net positive. Yeah, and I think that's a fair point. There's just like, as far as the U.S. goes, there's a gauge on things where there's just, there's some things that aren't universally agreed upon in like Christian theology and like birth control is one of them. So I would, 
I would see that not being an issue. But yeah, I, I get your point. Are you ready to go to your ne- the next case? Yes. Okay. All right. The next one is Bar Attorney General et al. versus American Association of Political Consultants et al. Oh, you're telling me about the last one? I looked up what et al. means. It's et alia, and it just means including others. <laughs> et alia? Yes. <laughs> All right. I'm, I'm going to say that from now on. All right. So this case actually involves the Telephone Consumer Protection Act, TCPA, of 1991. And that's the act that prohibits almost all robocalls to cell phones. So I'm going to give a little bit of background and then we'll get to the what the actual decision in this case was. So in 2015, Congress made an ex- exception to the TCPA that allowed debt collection calls from the U.S. government to be made to cell phones. So in this Supreme Court case, some political consulting firms were challenging the rule, saying that by allowing these debt collection calls and not political calls, the government was prioritizing one type of speech over another, and thus the entire TCPA should be unconstitutional. And in a pretty much unanimous decision, the Supreme Court decided that the TCPA was not unconstitutional. However, the exemption that allowed debt collection calls was. So now, from this decision, debt collection robocalls can no longer be made. And basically, that means debt collection and political speech both have the same freedoms, which in this case is none. (laughs) Okay. For everyone listening, I was holding my breath throughout that entire (laughs) explanation because this is really important to me. I love technology. I love technology law. I'm a privacy engineer. Half my job is law in technology. And Jesus Christ, I cannot tell you how much automation in technology is actually a legal issue. Mm -hmm. And this, like, there's a lot of people upset right now because of the simple fact that all sorts of robocalling still happen, not because it's supposed to be legal. Like, it's pretty much illegal for most forms of robocalling to happen. And yet the enforcement side of it is just hot garbage. The FCC needs to get their crap together. And John Oliver did a whole (laughs) bit where he kept spamming the FCC with robocalls. Of course. Get the point across that like so so many of us get these spam calls from fake numbers that are impossible to block because of the way they're able to spoof phone numbers. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, I'm so happy that this happened because first of all, robocalling is dumb. It is a dumb thing that was just a product of how we created the phone system and the internet. And you know what? We all should apologize. The internet was a mistake. (laughs) Burn it all down. Instagram was a bad idea. But on top of that, this is an important thing to understand in terms of there's a lot of places, especially around how they manage the spread of technology, like broadband providers constantly lobby against municipal governments for the exact reason that they are favoring a specific type of service provider over open competition. So Ah. in this case, they're saying that, well, if robocalls are okay for debt collectors, then why can't we use these for political purposes? Because Mm -hmm. saying that we, well, the government, which is in its own way a political institution, is using this tool that's supposed to not be okay. And fortunately, what they said was like, you're right. That's not okay. And not, you know what? You're right. You should be allowed to annoy every human being (laughs) on the planet with fear-mongering robocalls. And the flip side of this is, seeing lots of cases where state governments will actually make it, I don't know if it's unconstitutional. Basically, municipalities can't have their own service providers for internet because that would cause them to be favored as a government service over things like Spectrum or Verizon or people who don't actually care to provide real service in rural areas. 
Huh. Yeah. Is it kind of similar with like electricity companies or well, water companies? Well, that's a different thing is those are considered a specific titled service. I think it's a title one service. So it's like phone, oh. internet, and power are treated and sewage and garbage are treated a specific way. And so as a result, there are lots of different rules on how they can be handled. But internet itself is treated in a different way right now. So the way service providers are able to consider it an open market as opposed to a basic human right mm -hmm. is completely different. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. That said, the United Nations Article 50 says that internet is actually like you basically have a human right to good, reliable internet. And technically the United States is out of <laughs> out of compliance with with like international law oh in that God. respect. <laughs> of course it is. Of course. Why why wouldn't it be? Ugh. All right. And let's go on to our very last case of the past cases. And this is the US Patent and Trademark Office versus Booking.com. I particularly chose this one. One, it just like because of you, because I know you love patent stuff. So Booking.com was trying to trademark the term Booking.com with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, but they were denied, saying that a generic term could not be trademark. So basically, the Patent and Trademark Office said that combining two generic phrases, in this case, it would be the phrase booking and the phrase .com, then makes the resulting phrase to be booking.com also generic. Now, the court, the Supreme Court, overruled this decision by the Patent and Trademark Office, saying that the generic phrase rule only applied if the consumer thinks of the phrase as generic. So here in this case, because booking.com is associated with the website and the company and not with the general practice of booking for hotels online, the phrase then can then be trademarked. Yes. This is one of my favorite things about trademark law because of how wacky it is. Yes. Like, first of all, here's all the things you can trademark. You can trademark a name, a specific symbol. Think of the Nike swoosh. Oh. A color. You can trademark a smell. A smell? A smell. You can trademark anything as long as it is distinct to your brand. And this is also a little weird because think of things like apple. An apple is a fruit. And for the vast majority of human history, it was considered <laughs> as much. But if I told you apple right now, there's a fair number of you who probably thought of a computer brand that is just loves a wall garden model. <laughs> On top of that, you can have things where trademarks become so generic, they actually can no longer become trademark. Think of Band-Aid. Band-Aids used to be a specific brand name for a type of basically gauze with adhesive on it that you would put over open wounds. But now we just call them Band-Aids. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So this is like trademark law is my favorite because it's like wacky. But much like Apple, like a fruit that is a company, you have booking.com. Whereas mm -hmm. these two generic terms, it's clear. If, I, if someone told me booking.com, I wouldn't think to myself, yeah, it's a site for book. I, I don't know how that becomes <laughs> generic. I know. I mean, that's that's kind of why the Supreme Court decided this way. I think this one was probably also unanimous. But yeah, it's like you when you hear booking.com, you think automatically of the specific website. You don't think of the general act of booking a hotel online. So yeah. this seems pretty clear cut. Now, I should say that there are certain companies that right now are dealing with this weird gray area in between becoming being a specific name and becoming generic. And I think mm. one of my favorite examples is Google because if you oh. tell someone to Google it, you're just telling them to look it up. You're not actually telling them to go to the Google search engine and search it. So in a weird way, 
Google is still definitely a trademark name of a specific company under the Alphabet Corporation. But like a lot of people use the term freely and it's not considered a brand placement. Oh my gosh, you became so big. You're... <laughs> Your actual word lost meaning, yeah. like specific meaning. That's crazy. Also, fun fact about the origin of the term Google, it was originally supposed to be a play on the actual number Google. A Google is it considered, I think it's like one to the hundred, it's 10 to the hundred. That sounds right. Yeah, yeah, it's supposed to be, the idea was it was a search engine that would have a Google results. Oh. It would have like, yeah. Okay, I see it. Yeah, and also I got to do a video or an episode or something about the information age and what like big search engines actually mean to that because I don't think people fully comprehend why companies like Yahoo and Google became as big and the things that they were and why one succeeded and the other one totally sucks and is also the only <laughs> the only thing left good about Yahoo is whatever the McElroys decide to do with the next. Yes. <laughs> All right. I, I will look forward to that. And would you like a few cases to look forward to? I don't believe for a moment I'll look forward to any of them, but please enlighten <laughs> me. All right. I'm going to go over two cases in particular to watch out for. Now, the first one is Google versus Oracle America. Ooh, I think I know where this one is, but please tell me. Yes. This is a case that's been going on for a while, like back in 2018, this started, and it's set to be argued on October 7th. So this revolves around, one, whether copyright protection extends to software interface, and two, whether using that software while creating a new, like, computer program constitutes as fair use. So a bit of history. Apparently, Google speak of the devil, in early versions of making their Android operating system, they use some Java APIs, which are owned by Oracle. And Google has admitted to doing this, and they've now transitioned to using something that isn't copyright. But Google claims that their original use of the APIs was fair use. And Oracle obviously doesn't think that. And they're suing Google for $8.8 billion in damages. Yeah. I have to talk about every part of this and we don't have time, but I'm going to do my best. All, All right, right. Go. Here's what's crazy. Copyright law is wacky for software because software is something that produces something, makes a computation, does some sort of outcome. But someone wrote the code. And as a result, code is copywritten like a book is copywritten, like anything you would write or produce is copywritten. Mm -hmm. So when you create a language. Java itself is a copywritten language owned by Oracle. Every time you use it, you are actually using it to produce something that is yours. But if you actually have to use that in a licensed manner, then you are you have to pay for a Java license to actually be using the software as a foundational part of your product. Oh. So it's like if you needed a license to manufacture a specific patented invention that goes into your invention. You are technically still paying to use someone else's invention. You can't just use their invention for free. Okay. But here we have a weird case where you're using one invention to invent something else. And a core part of the Android operating system, the part I'm most familiar with, is built in Java. And so Oracle's like, yeah, we technically deserve a share of like every time Android was sold or used in a specific thing. Like that's insane. That's insane <laughs> because we lit like it's code so we can copy it. And it's in every single mobile device we have ever sold. Why on earth would you deserve a sliver of every single product we've ever sold? You've done none of the work. Yeah. We use your language to build our thing. And since then, they technically evolved past Java. I don't know what they use now, but 
There are these like weird Java offshoots like Kotlin that are built on Java. Technically, okay. JavaScript's built on Java. Like, there's language. They're very similar. Language itself is insane. Like, the original Java was built in C, which no one owned. Oh. But the next version of Java was built in the first version of Java. And the Java after that was <laughs> Like, it's so weird. It's like this Ouroboros <laughs> of a snake every time a new language is invented. And so all these pieces, if anyone can claim a copyright on any part of it, can suddenly cause these hilarious like, if you look at tech law in the tech industry, it is the most mind-boggling waste of money. I'm not kidding. <laughs> if Samsung wants to sue Apple over curved edges on their phones, it is a $500 million lawsuit. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. Like, I swear to God, this was invented just so lawyers could get richer. <laughs> Nothing about wow. this is meaningful. But at the end of the day, this is definitely going to be something interesting to look at because – Oracle really isn't innovating, and I don't know what the heck is going on. Yeah, and like, so this case, I told you it's been going on for a while. So it's been through two district courts, which found in favor of Google, and one federal circuit court that found in favor of Oracle. So now it's going to be to the Supreme Court to decide. Here's the other problem. These lawyers and these, like, are arguing things that the judges themselves have no concept of basically judges yeah. in a lot of, a lot of the times these cases so first of all these are global companies they can bring these cases in any place they have a presence which is basically any place they've decided to set up a p.o box so okay that's an oversimplification huh. please don't at me at well um, <laughs> but at me <laughs> but like samsung loves to sue people in texas because they throw money at a specific place in texas like a specific county in Texas where like the specific judge they always bring the laws in front of is like, oh, yeah, Samsung has a presence here. People see Samsung favorably in this area. So when they bring cases that have national impact, they bring them in a place in the middle of Texas. What? Yeah. That's. Yeah. Uh, okay. And, every, and it's not just them. Every big tech company does this. Like San Bernardino. I think is where Apple brings a lot of their suits, which makes the most sense because yeah. that's where they are. Yeah, that makes but sense. But at the same time, like they play favorites with judges there. And huh. this the thing is at the end of the day, like if you look at a lot of laws that especially have to do with technology, the people who make the rulings on them, they try to do their best to learn about this stuff. But technology is so advanced now, it's impossible to wrap your mind around the layers of information that go into any sort of case. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, I personally find myself pretty tech savvy. I, I cannot fully comprehend this case in a way. Like, it's just kind of beyond me. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is the, like, nasty lasagna of code. Mm -hmm. All right. What else? All right. And the last one we're going to cover, I mentioned it before. It is here now. It is California versus Texas and Texas versus California. These are two cases combined into one. And they're set to be argued on November 10th. So this all has to do with the Affordable Care Act, also called Obamacare, and whether that act is constitutional. So, bit of background. The ACA was challenged before because of the individual mandate. That's the part of the ACA that required everyone to have a minimum amount of health insurance or they would have to pay a fine on their taxes. So the Supreme Court upheld the mandate in NFIB versus Sibelius, I think I said that right, in 2012, saying that this was allowed as part of the Congress's taxing power. However, 2017, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act passed, and that's the big tax cut bill that the Trump administration did. 
And part of that bill removed the individual mandate. And they did this by just making the fine zero dollars. So now you like have to pay a fine, but it's you don't because it's zero dollars. This is actually funny because this is one of those whenever you try to get rid of an old law, you have to replace it with a new law thing. So instead, Mm -hmm. they just tried to screw with the old law to make it to basically neuter it. Yeah. And now that the financial penalty is gone, those on the Texas side of the case are arguing that the individual mandate is unconstitutional, and thus the entire Affordable Care Act is unconstitutional. Now, those on the California side are against that, and they're asking for the Supreme Court to rule on the following three questions. One, can Texas challenge the individual mandate? Two, is the individual mandate now unconstitutional? And three, is that mandate and any decision around it separate from the rest of the ACA. So basically, the California side's hoping that even if the individual mandate in its current state is unconstitutional, can that be divorced from the rest of the Affordable Care Act? Now, striking down the Affordable Care Act could have a lot of consequences. So when people think of the ACA, I think most people really, they just think of two things, the individual mandate that required everyone to have health insurance And the part where Medicaid got expanded, really because those things were in the news the most. But it also includes things like letting children be with their parents' health insurance until the age of 26 and protection for people with pre-existing health conditions so that now health insurance companies can't deny people health insurance coverage if they have a pre-existing condition and coverage of preventive care. And money for public health measures. So the ACA includes a lot of stuff related to health insurance. So this would be a big deal if this got struck down. Yeah, like let's be clear. They're basically complaining over a fine in order to take away health care from literally millions of people who could not get it any other way. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That's I think all I have to say about why this is a clearly a partisan attempt at cherry picking your cases in order to undermine a what I think many people in our country see as a national good. And also, I got to give it to the Republicans. They've done an exceptional job as branding the ACA as Obamacare and therefore the Democrats problem and therefore only a problem for liberals and not a problem for the country. So this is one of those places where you're going to see this coming from two fronts. It's from the congressional side where there's like the actual people who make laws trying to cut it down saying this is bad and then also trying to back it up on the legal side by having the judiciary attack it, saying it's unconstitutional or not. Yeah, and I also want to make it clear, the Affordable Care Act, it was not perfect when it was made. There's kind of a lot of issues with it, and there are certain things that could definitely have been better. Actually, the individual mandate in the original version of the Affordable Care Act, that wasn't even in it. That got added in later to kind of bring in the health insurance companies and everyone to actually get this passed. So it's just... It's not a perfect system. Our health insurance in general is not a perfect sentence. I mean, you got that sentiment clear from me earlier. But more importantly, this will make a big impact and this could change a lot of people's health insurance. And it could affect a wide range of people from people who, you know, have diseases and conditions already like let's say people who have cancer and now they're not going to be covered by their health insurance. Yeah, I think you've spoken a lot to stuff like this where it's things that have to do with your employer not doing a great job covering your health care or just not being able to afford health care. And the ACA gives people of a certain income level or people with a pre-existing condition the authority to say, no, I deserve health care. I deserve to be able to afford to live. And yeah, 
All I can say is thank you, Sam, for sharing these this intense legal roundup with me. And I've enjoyed hearing how the erosion of our democracy is also happening through our judiciary. Thank you. <laughs> oh, boy. All right. <laughs> well, that wasn't the intention, but I hope all of our listeners are informed a little bit about what's been going on on the Supreme Court and have some stuff to look forward to. And we're going to miss you, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You were an inspiration to all of us, and we hope to carry on your legacy. Yes. As for us, that sample size, Sam, I'm pretty sure that all those tasty, tasty sources are down in the notes right? Yes, they are. Where can people find us? You can find us on social media at Sample Size Show. Please subscribe to this podcast. I'm sure you already have. But more importantly, if you enjoyed this episode, why don't you share it with a friend? Why don't you share it on your social media or, you know, just go tell your buddy like, hey, I listened to this great episode about Supreme Court cases and I think you should listen to it. Please do tell all your friends and some of your enemies. In fact, all your maybe you and your enemies could bond over this episode. Oh, my goodness. Until next time, don't forget to register to vote, and we'll see you later. Bye. See ya.